0: The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkettown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkettown, please visit our website at www.durkettown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N. dot o r g. Well, today is uh, uh, a sermon that is not a sermon in the classic sense. When I preached this down at St. James, I had a vis- we had a vi- visiting family, some friends of mine, and he pastors a church nearby, and I gave my apology ahead of time because I know that he knew that what I was preaching wasn't a classic sermon. I am wanting to preach, however a truth that, uh, I pray, reinforces what we believe as a church and what is the hope of humanity for their salvation, and that is salvation in Jesus alone, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior. And I do this because Jesus uh, identifies himself in John 10 as the door. The parable that was read then unfolds into teaching where Jesus says in verse number 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and find pasture. So, Father, I pray that we as a church would remain steadfast in our conviction that what the scripture teaches about salvation is in fact eternally true. That salvation comes alone through faith alone in Christ alone for your glory alone, O God. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Amen. What does the parable mean and specifically the door? You might notice that after Jesus spoke the parable in verse number 8, John tells us that the people who heard did not understand it, did not understand what he meant. And so we want to make sure as we start with this first question, what does the parable mean and specifically the meaning of the door? that we are clear, and if you are not clear, even by the end of this sermon, you would be so compelled by God's Spirit to talk to me or someone about what this means. I should mention that there are connecting points between chapter number 10 and the previous chapters that I will be making in next week's sermon Uh, And the reason I'm waiting is, as I've said, I want our attention to be on this one single truth, and that is the claim that Jesus makes that he is the door, because that claim becomes the good news announcement of the apostles and the church that we today proclaim Jesus alone saves. He is the door. And you might notice that uh, the first thing this parable does is to present a contrast between the shepherding ministry of Jesus and the lack of shepherding by the Jewish leadership. And I think the language here is important, not just because of how offensive it is, but because it does draw a sharp line in the sand. We are uh, in a time when, you know, only the people who live in darkness are allowed to offend. Anyone who lives in the light and has the actual truth is hushed, lest we offend. And we need to remember that Jesus, when he spoke, and this has been true of where we've gone thus far in this uh, series on the I Am, has not stepped back from saying things that were indeed offensive. And this statement uh, is offensive, that he alone is the door. And in the comparison, in verse 2, he says that um, some are thieves, or excuse me, in verse number 1, some are thieves and robbers, those who try to get in some other way. And that is contrasted with him being the true shepherd of the sheep. He uses that same contrast, by the way, in verses 8 um, through 10, when he calls them again thieves and robbers. He says, all that came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't hear them. I am the door, verse 9, by me. If anyone enter in, he shall be saved, shall go in and out, find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then he says, I've come to give life in greater abundance. And so this contrast uh, Jesus establishes, and he uses language that uh, is indeed offensive. Sincerity is not the only thing that matters, folks. As sincere as they may sound or look or be, if they do not have the truth and are not proclaiming the truth, then they are sincerely wrong. Now, we don't need to be, you know, offensive to the point where we're, you know, just being mean or unkind. But we can't run the risk of not telling the truth by being afraid that somebody doesn't want to hear the truth. The second thing that this parable does for us is that in the use of this imagery of a door... Some older translations might use the word gate. Um, Jesus distinguishes himself as the entry point for God's favor and God's fellowship. So he says, I am the door. And um, the quote by uh, Calvin that I pulled out of his commentary, I I thought was really appropriate uh, to kind of get to this. Calvin writes, this expression, I am the door, is equivalent to Christ saying that it is to him alone that all must be gathered. Therefore, he invites and exhorts everyone who seeks salvation to come to him. The entry point, not only for salvation, but Jesus then establishes this as a means of invitation, a means of exhortation. So it's not enough for us simply to stand up and say, Jesus alone saves, and if you're not coming to him in faith, you have no salvation. But we need to woo people, we need to invite people, we need to exhort people to make sure that what they have their faith resting in is Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is the reason why I'm preaching this sermon, because you can come to a church and remain in a church, and yet not truly be trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. So Jesus identifies himself as the door, uh, and as the entry point for God's salvation, and Jesus doesn't leave it as an open-ended question. And and American culture and society today is all about open-ended questions. It's what you believe, it's what you believe, it's what you believe, it's what you like, it's what you like, it's what you like. If you don't like that, don't worry about it. Jesus says, no. No. I am the door. Here's the contrast. You can follow those who may sound sincere. You may follow those who present something that appears so very attractive. But they are thieves and robbers. They're going to kill and destroy. I am the door. When you come into me, I provide you with green pasture and I give you life, a life that Jesus describes for us in verse number 10 as a life of abundance, uh, meaning that the life he gives is abundantly overflowing and continuing life. It's not a veiled promise that, you know, name it, claim it. If you come to Jesus, you get a Mercedes Benz or whatever your favorite car might be. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that when you come to me, you are provided with spiritual nourishment, spiritual food, green pastures, and a life that will never diminish, that will have an overflow, a continuing overflow abundance. That simply may be promised by other salvation efforts but it just can't be delivered and the sad truth of what is unfolding today in American culture and society is going to leave a lot of people not just depressed but desperate because they think that they finally got what they need and they don't because they have not come to Jesus Christ so it's not only Are we to proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? But we are to, as Calvin said, invite and exhort, plead with people. As we've noted in previous sermons, some Jews were believing in Jesus. Some were beginning to follow Jesus. And along the way, there was, of course, opposition to Jesus. And ultimately, rejection of Jesus. In face of that opposition, in face of that rejection, though, Jesus stands his ground. He makes it clear that although he may be rejected and he may be opposed, it does not take away from the fact that he is the door through which anyone who desires God's salvation must enter. And people, of course, can follow thieves and robbers the thieves and robbers of religion, whatever religion that might be. But if true salvation is going to be experienced, it will only be experienced when a person turns from all of the false offers that false salvation brings and all of those you know, self-salvation projects that people have and they place their faith in the crucified one, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus has told us. John has laid out the breadcrumbs thus far in his gospel. In these three sermons, we've, we've listened to Jesus say these things. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up in the last day. Chapter 6, verse 44. We're given faith to believe what God has initiated through his sovereign grace, will indeed come to pass as we, by faith, come to him. But listen, choices have to be made because hell opposes the message of the singularity of Jesus Christ as Savior. Hell, and all of its darkness and desperation, is a force driving against the central truth upon which salvation rests, that Jesus alone saves. You might remember in the first sermon in this series, in the Bread of Life sermon, that the end of it, when people are walking away from Jesus, Jesus says to the twelve, are you going to go away as well? And then Simon looks at him, and Simon answers, and man, this is the answer that should be on the lips of the church. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you want to memorize a verse that's appropriate and necessary for today's discourse? There it is, John 6, 67 to 69. And yet churches up and down our streets and villages and roads and cities are all walking away from this claim because it's so offensive to say that, you know, we got the corner on the truth. That we actually have the right belief, you know, in spite of billions of people who believe in something else, that we have the truth. You see, to believe in Jesus then results in following Jesus, and that's what we saw last night. And it becomes a transformative encounter. This is not a transactional matter where you, you, know, you do something and then it never affects you anymore This is a transformational encounter by which you come to the light of Jesus. You begin to follow the light of Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, you are changed within a relationship, as we said last week. We follow the light which leads to life. This is why, as we we saw last week, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Have you found that true about the faith that you claim to have? Have you found it true that your kind of arc of relationship with God in Christ has given more light and more life, even though life may be hard and challenging and difficult, that you are finding an abundance of life through faith in Jesus for the kind of life promised as we read from John 10 is one of abundance. Abundance. We have life because he gave his life for us. Never forget that all of this comes at a cost, a cost to the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. What the Exodus passage foresaw and what would be required to uh, have judgment pass over and then deliverance from bondage was blood that would cover. And so the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and me covers our sin, delivers us from the bondage to sin and death as we by faith believe in what Jesus has accomplished. It's easy for a bunch of people who I assume most of whom in this room are Christians to get around. Thank you for the amen, Jerry. uh, And to sing these songs and to nod your head in affirmation and to believe this. But you still have to ask a question. On what authority do we say this? On what authority do I say this? Is it just vestiges of American Christianity that's kind of like hanging on by its fingertips that we say these things? Because, you know, this is what most of us have, we were born into or believed our whole lives. Is that what we're doing here? Is that your faith? No, well, you know, I, I don't want to be a non-Christian. I, you know, I don't want to be one of those. So, I'll, you know, I'll go along with the thing. I like the conservative values. I like, you know, the people. And, but that's, that's different from then saying, listen, I believe in something because it has authority. Beyond the vertical human authority. You see, we not only have the self-testimony of Jesus, which would be enough, by the way. It would be enough. He is the eternal Son of God, the Lord of glory. But we also have been given the authority of the apostles who proclaim that Jesus alone saves. And so hopefully the parable is a little more clear now. And so we got to ask then, what about this apostolic authority that was given to a group of men to then take this truth of the exclusive claim of Jesus as Savior and then give it to the world? And so what I, what I did was... I cherry pick some passages to make my point. I don't usually do this, but you know, there is is infinite value, I believe, in simply proclaiming the truth that Jesus alone saves. And so what I'm going to do, and you know, if you want to see what these look like afterwards, maybe there's another copy of the sermon available, or it'll be up here on the lectern, and you can come and look at it. I'm just going to read from John the Baptist, the last prophet proclaiming the coming Christ to Jesus himself, and then all the way through the apostolic uh, writings. Um, I'm not going to read all of them, but I've just cherry-picked some ones, and I'm just going to read them because I think the church needs to be reinforced in hearing this because we're constantly being torn at. We're being cannibalized with all of these false religions and all of these false truths, and they get in, and they, we wonder, like, oh, man, what if we're not right? What if my parents weren't right? And so Jesus himself would be enough. But he gives authority to his apostles to make these, these declarations. John 1, behold the Lamb of God. And what does the Lamb of God do? He takes away the sin of the world. In Luke 24, if you have a copy of this, it might say two, but it should say say 24. Uh, In Luke 24, the evening of the day of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus says these words. As he tells them that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scripture and he said to them, thus it is written... And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name. Among all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Peter witnesses to that on the day of Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus. Whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ, and then later Peter would say, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. Paul, when he writes to his protege Timothy, says, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul, at, in the city of Athens, on Mars Hill, at the Areopagus, says to the group of skeptics and doubters and philosophers... And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And then in the great letter to Romans, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto what? Salvation. But now, Paul writes in Ephesians, you're in Christ sometimes. You are far off, but now made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, By the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were far off, and to them that were nigh, and in Hebrews, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look to him, he shall appear the second time without sin for salvation." The Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Savior, gave to his apostles the authority to proclaim to the world, to you and to me, the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior, that Christ alone saves. And we have that same authority today. And I love what the missionary of times past now, Leslie Newbigin, wrote when in, in his, actually, it was a lecture of series, became a book, and this is what he wrote. We challenge, and, he, and, he's writing, and he's writing this to the church. A man who spent decades evangelizing India, he writes this. We challenge any belief with the authority eternally located in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. L- let that be, along with all the other things I've said today, like our trumpet sounding. We challenge any belief that's out there with the authority of the eternally located, that's eternally located in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we speak eternal things. It's why we must hold fast to eternal things. The victory of God won through the crucified Christ over death and evil. The victory we share when we by faith confess that it is only through Faith in a crucified Christ who is now Lord of all. When that confession is made, sins are forgiven. Debts are canceled. Joy comes. Hope flourishes. Green pastures. Abundance of life. Church, this is not something to be ashamed of. This is not something to be reticent about. If the building's not on fire, I feel like I should say the building's not on fire, but if you were in a building that was on fire and you knew the only door through which people could go for rescue and you offended everybody else who was trying to get them to go in another direction, every single person that you rescued, you would not afterwards on the outside look at them and say, I'm so sorry, Zach, that I, I led you through the door. I'm so sorry, Rick, you know. I'm so sorry, Alice. I'm so sorry, Cindy. I got you to safety. I got you to rescue. But the church has been shoved back so far in our culture that we're just like, oh, sorry. We do have the answer. It's Jesus Christ. And, and because it's been, uh, you know, the church has been either politicized or because the church has been, you know, um, neutered with its authority, this exclusive claim of Jesus is getting lost. So you're not getting a classic sermon today. <laughs> you're you're kind of getting a rant. I guess it's a rant. I don't know. Is it a rant, Brian? <laughs> Brian I've heard you rant. Is, this a, is, is it a good rant? Am I doing okay so far? Just thank, thank you very much. It's people on the front row I'm okay with. Good, there you go. <laughs> you wouldn't be reticent about saving people from a burning building. You wouldn't apologize to them afterwards you would do everything you could when god threw himself entirely into our hell he did it for his glory but in kind of you know getting my john piper back in my mind he did it for our joy as well our eternal joy so never forget the eternal glory of god and the joy of people rest in the truth that jesus alone saves and that as the door to salvation He is the entry point to life, for where there is light, there is life, and life in abundance. What would it look like then, my third question, to develop a ministry around the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord? How does apostolic instruction teach us to develop a ministry or to reinforce what is already here, perhaps, a ministry that... that is foundationally built on Christ alone, for salvation alone. I'd like you to go in your scriptures now to 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. The whole book is, is just fantastic. A defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. Who would have ever thought that the Apostle Paul would have had to defend himself? And yet, the false teachers, the false shepherds, the critics, the people that were trying to tear at the Corinthian church established were driving into Paul and trying to disregard Paul. And Paul writes this letter to defend his apostolic ministry. And I think chapter number four is just absolutely brilliant. All of them are. But this is where I land when I think about developing ministry. Let me read the first six verses. Therefore... Last, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine upon them for we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake for God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness that shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how to develop a ministry that, that, that like just just like drips with the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, you've got to do two things. First, you've got to renounce, and secondly, you've got to manifest truth. So the renouncing of what he calls the hidden things of dishonesty the renouncing of walking in craftiness. The renouncing of handling the word of God deceitfully. And there are churches full today. All over the world, in this nation in particular, that are full because they appeal to the flesh as they are dishonest and crafty and deceitful about what they say. As they stand there you know, with their Bible open, at least for a few moments. And, and, and people are just, like, lining up to get in the doors. And faithful churches where the word of God is proclaimed, you know, it's, it's like, a, like a quarterback when the blitz is on. They, they, once a quarterback starts moving his feet nervously, like, he's done for, right? And this is the way a lot of church, churches are in church leadership. Like, oh, no, we're losing people. Oh, no, we're not going to make it. Oh, no. And, and then they start, well, maybe we need to recraft the message. And Paul says, you want a ministry of mercy? Renounce. Renounce hidden things of dishonesty. Renounce the, the pull to walk in craftiness. And renounce the handling of the word of God deceitfully. And then, at the same time, You've got to manifest the truth. And and this is such an impactful statement that Paul writes. He says, you've got to manifest the truth as you commend yourself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Why does Paul use this idea of conscience? Well, it is within the conscience, within the person's being, that the Holy Spirit of God takes the truth and begins to work, begins to undo them. Remember at Pentecost, as Peter preaches and the people are pierced within themselves. I want to be able on judgment day to look at people in the eye and said, I commended God's truth to your conscience. I did not appeal to your flesh to try to get you to come to church. And then give you, you know, Christianity light. And I'm not so sure there's a lot of pastors out there. Maybe there are more than we know, right? Right? Just faithful churches like us not making, you know, the headlines. Who understand that when we talk to people, we are to talk to their conscience, their inner person, by giving them a manifestation of the truth. The truth that Jesus is the door. Through whom comes life in abundance. One of the features of the parable Jesus told was that of, as he contrasted his ministry with the those of the thieves and robbers, Paul does the same thing here in chapter number four. He he says that the first part of verse number two, dishonesty, craftiness, deceit. And the second part of verse number two, it is a manifestation of the truth by which we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And don't forget that last part. In the side of God, we are, by the way, doing these things. Which side will we line up on? Will you in your daily witness, will you in your discussion and discourse with people about the truth claims of Jesus Christ and the church and the direction that this nation and our communities, which, which side are you going to line up on? Are you going to just cut the edges? Try not to be, I don't, don't want to be too hard, too offensive. And again, you, you don't have to be like, let the truth offend people. You don't have to be offensive. Just let the truth speak for itself. Commend truth to conscience. And let God do his work. Because this is what we're up against. We're up against a gospel that is hid. It's hidden to those that are lost. The God of this world has blinded them. They do not believe. They're blinded. The glorious gospel of Christ is hidden from them. Which is why we must not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus Lord. That's what we have to do. And that when we do this, we're we're servants for the sake of Jesus, who's given us this ministry of mercy. Let that be our ministry model, and come what may, opposition, rejection. A diminishing of, or a flourishing of, let it be our central reality. You know, civic groups and local clubs need members. And they'll do just about anything to get people into their groups. Because they hopefully, you know, want these people to keep the cause of the group going. That's not to be the way with the church. And in a time when the church is out of favor, even within its own parish, within its own community, the church still has but one job. And that is to seek the favor of God in Christ through the work of the Spirit and serve the cause of Christ through the faithful proclamation of the exclusivity of Jesus, Savior and Lord. One more Newbigin quote from the many that I have in my life. In this series of lecture, lectures, he, he said this. As long as the church is content to offer its beliefs modestly as simply one of the many brands available in the ideological supermarket no offense is taken but the affirmation that the truth revealed in the gospel that it ought to govern public life is offensive it's offensive that is an offensive thing to say that every aspect of life ought to be governed by the truth of Jesus Christ And that what we do is not an a la carte, pick-your-own way of life. But if we're content to just kind of offer that modestly, somewhat ashamedly, shoved off into the corner now of American culture and society, because we're afraid of the offense, then things will continue to grow dark. Are we willing to bear up under the scrutiny of our friends and neighbors who will not want to hear this? And so I want to close with the following affirmation and it's taken from Westminster Confession of Faith. It's an affirmation concerning Jesus Christ and I hope by affirming this that you see more clearly Jesus as the door through which we walk, we place our faith and our trust and our hope for salvation. But I'm aware that just as when Jesus spoke these words, there were people that did not understand, you still may not understand. Please talk to me afterwards. Please talk to me afterwards. Listen to Westminster. It pleased God. I don't know, is that on the screen? Oh, fantastic, read it with me. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity Give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Durkey Town, this is why we proclaim Jesus, who is the bread of life, the light of the world, and the door through whom we come alone for salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkytown, please visit our website at www.durkytown.org.